Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 40, The Boy Tsars. No new Patreon supporters, but as I mentioned last time, I'm starting to look at ways to improve the website and looking for people interested in collaborating on creating a Bulgarian language version of the podcast. So anyone out there wants to help out with that, has some ideas, anything, get in touch. You guys know how, Facebook, all that stuff. Also, if you have new ideas for Patreon goals or perks, even if you're not a Patreon supporter, I don't care. Just if you think there's something I could give you guys that would be awesome or some new goal that we could reach, also reach out. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, I'm always looking for kind of new great stuff to make and do for you all. Lastly, quick thanks to Zach Twomley from the When Diplomacy Fails podcast for the super nice mention in his latest blog post about what else but Patreon and kind of money in podcasting. A link to that post on the Facebook page so you can check it out there and check out his podcast. It's a great one. So now to the narrative. So we left off last time in 1241 with the death of Tsar Ivan Asen II and the ascension of his seven-year-old son Kaliman to the throne. Now, I mentioned last time that kind of just after Kaliman became Tsar, Bulgaria was forced to pay tribute to the Golden Horde, a Mongol state based out of the Eurasian steppe. This followed a devastating invasion where, according to kind of archaeological evidence, many Bulgarian cities were destroyed by the Mongols. Now we're quite certain that at this point, right when he took power, there was a regency for young Kaliman. I mean, you couldn't expect a seven-year-old to run things on his own. Though, we don't really know who these regents were. Most likely Kaliman's uncle, Alexander. But let's also remind ourselves, in general, as we get a kind of grip of what the world looks like after Ivan Asen II, what does the world look like around 1242, once the Mongols had forced their tribute and Kaliman is on the throne? Also, a quick note uh, that I should have mentioned in the last episode, but I didn't quite realize it until working here. Uh... The Okay, so we talk about the Mongols. Um, what else was happening with the Mongols? Well, as they advanced, as the Golden Horde expanded, uh, they essentially destroyed a Cuman state, which had dominated the area above the Black Sea, extending all the way to the Sea of Azov for centuries, between about 1037 uh, and 1040. Uh, sorry, 1237 and 1240. So just after the reign of Ivanis II. So... Yeah, before, before while, while Ivanasen II is still ruling, the Cuman state is destroyed. So what does this mean? First, it created a wave of refugees which spread into Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Empire of Nicaea. A large group of them passed through Bulgaria and devastated Thrace on the way. In Hungary, the refugees mixed into the population, including that of the elites, uh, giving kind of another reason for another Mongol attack, because the Mongols had destroyed the Cumans and didn't really like that the Cuman elite had gone and merged with the Hungarian elite. They kind of blamed the Hungarians for this. But the second reason why this is actually really important for us is that the destruction of this Cuman state was a big problem for Bulgaria, because the Cumans, as we know, have been a really important ally for Bulgaria for a very long time. 
the Cumans, as you'll recall, they've been an integral part of Bulgarian armies. Uh, ethnically, they'd married into the Asen dynasty on a number of occasions. Um, you know, basically, yeah, they've been super important allies and troops and uh, everything since the founding of the Second Bulgarian Empire. So, losing this source of good soldiers first was a major blow for the Bulgarian military. It also, furthermore, meant the replacing of a friendly neighbor, the Cumans, with a very hostile one, the Golden Horde. Which, you know, they're Mongols. I don't have to tell you that these guys are no pushovers. Also, thinking about the state of Bulgaria's neighbors around the beginning of Kaliman's reign. Remember the Empire of Thessalonica had been crushed and turned into kind of a minor tributary state of Bulgaria. The Kievan Rus had also been conquered by the aforementioned Mongols and the Golden Horde. Hungary was in ruins after being devastated by the Mongols themselves. The Latin Empire was holding on for dear life, though some pressure had been taken off after Ivanasen II decided to stop collaborating with the Empire of Nicaea and allow Western troops to actually travel through Bulgarian territory to help relieve the Latins. The Nicaeans themselves now had no rivals, major rivals, in the Balkans, with the Latins weak uh, and Bulgaria even weaker by the day under its young Tsar. So, although the Mongols were kind of in the process of also destroying the Seljuks off in uh, Anatolia, so it's kind of weird, like the Mongols are going in a giant pincer move. Uh, they're in Anatolia and they're in the Eurasian steppe. Um, so this is causing a great deal of worry for Nicaea, though. So Nicaea doesn't have any major rivals, but the fact that the Mongols are destroying what were the what have been a major power in Anatolia for well over a century, the Seljuks, this means that the Seljuks could imminently be replaced by the Mongols, and the Mongols could be attacking Nicaea from uh, from Asia. So you know, the Nicaeans are kind of they're looking very good, but they're a little bit worried at the same time. You know, there's some ominous uh, things on the horizon. So at this moment, the early 1240s, in general, the Mongols are totally remaking the political space in both Europe and Anatolia. It seems that if things go right for Nicaea, Constantinople could be retaken by the Greeks at any time. But what Bulgaria will do under a regency is really unclear. You know, will they ally with the Latins against the Nicaeans or with the Nicaeans against the Latins? Because of course they've done both several times up to this point. But what is clear is that uh, the uh, kind of Bulgaria's ability to exert power at this moment, following its defeat at the hands of the Mongol, uh, Mongols, is doubtful. So even if whoever Bulgaria decides to ally with, they're, they're not a very strong power in this moment. Another quick point that uh, I should have mentioned before as well, but I didn't quite understand until working on this episode, is about well what we call the Mongols. So the branch of the Mongols that created the Golden Horde, will eventually be referred to as the Tatars. So I mentioned the Tatars in, in Crimea and everything. I didn't realize that they were also in some ways synonymous with the Mongols in the later literature. It's a bit confusing. But so some sources on this period called them Mongols. Other sources call them Tatars. I'm going to mostly refer to them as Mongols, but I'll occasionally just mention Mongol Tatars and just understand that these are more or less interchangeable and that over time the, the term Tatar will begin to predominate. Okay, so that's a good idea of the geopolitical situation around Tsar Kaliman and his Bulgaria, but now for some context about the internal situation. Now, in order to get a grip on this, I'm going to quote historian John Fine at length because 
well, he just does an amazing job summarizing everything. And why bother trying to improve on a great thing? He just does it well. So I'm just going to do this very long quote. So here we go. Quote, no apparatus existed to hold the state together. Bulgaria lacked a statewide bureaucracy staffed by administrative and financial officials appointed by the central government and dispatched to the provinces. There was also no state-financed army raised by the state to serve under the command of a state of state-appointed generals who owed their position solely to state service. Instead, the provinces were dominated by a provincial nobility. These nobles governed their localities, rendered to the state local taxes which they themselves collected, and dominated the army, which was to a large extent composed of local levies raised by and serving under these notable nobles themselves. Even when governors were sent out from the center, they found themselves unable to deprive the boyars of their local authority and thus served in cooperation with them. When a Tsar like Asen proved himself a successful war chief, he won from the boyars, though their fear of punitive action or through their eagerness for booty, expressions of loyalty. Then, through these personal ties of allegiance, the localities commanded by the boyars became temporarily bound to Tornovo and the central government. Clearly, though, such bonds were not to bring lasting cohesion to a state." End quote. Okay, so what does this all mean? It's something we've we've talked about a bit, we've alluded to. But first, it's connecting to the fact that Bulgarian power is so incredibly dependent on the power of the Tsar. If there's a weak Tsar, then the boyars, those local nobles, they're not going to work with that Tsar. They'll do their own thing. And if there's a strong Tsar, he can bring their power together and the sort of overall strength of the state can massively increase very quickly, right? So the position of the Tsar can bring Bulgaria up very fast and down very fast. Uh, and so essentially the strength of the Second Bulgarian Empire is permanently contingent upon the strength inherent in that one person who sits on the throne, which is something that's kind of inherently precarious, right? You're only one heartbeat away from disaster at any given point. So yeah, this this is something to kind of bear in mind. It's it's a good context to have as we talk about uh, the next several tsars in the next several decades. So another kind of point here, it's a broader historical point, though, about what Fine says as well. So as I've mentioned, we tend to look back on the people and institutions of history through the lens of our modern world. When we say state, you think of the states you're familiar with. You, know, you think of, I don't know, the United States or European states or Brazil, Russia, whatever. You know, you think of a modern bureaucratic nation state. But the critical difference, one of many, is the existence of a bureaucracy with rules and institutional memory. These help smooth the transitions between leaders and keep things going no matter who's running stuff. I mean, you can look no further to how the U.S. government keeps running when there's a change in its chief executive. That's one of the big advantages of these big bureaucratic states. And as Fine mentions, Bulgaria does not have that. And that is a critical difference between not just Bulgaria and today, but between Bulgaria and the former Byzantine Empire. Right? The Byzantines had a pretty serious bureaucracy, which did a lot to help that state survive bad leadership. But Bulgaria didn't, and so it's less able to cope with bad leadership. All right. 
so we spent like uh, 10 minutes going through all, all these kinds of broader philosophical points and stuff. Now it's time to delve back into the actual narrative. Around 1242, a peace treaty is signed between the Latin Empire, Bulgaria, and Nicaea. So once again, Bulgaria has some time to breathe and recover from the Mongol invasion. But everyone knows that this peace cannot last. For this reason, the Latin Emperor Baldwin II goes to the West to get help in 1245, seeing the incredibly precarious situation of Constantinople and the Latin Empire. He spends two years in the West raising money to help pay for the defense of the Latin Empire and just sort of you know, generally trying to, to rally support for him. Because he knows that while an attack from Bulgaria seems unlikely with that young Tsar Kaliman and his regency, John III, Emperor of Nicaea, is poised to strike as soon as he feels ready, including not feeling threatened by the Mongols in Anatolia. But before Baldwin ran off to the west in 1243, there, was, uh, there were kind of other news in the Balkans, particularly a popular uprising against uh, Vladislav, the leader of Serbia. Now, you'll remember that Ivana Sen largely put Vladislav on the throne by supporting his coup in 1234. But with the death of Ivana Sen, Bulgaria no longer had a strong position to kind of dominate Serbian politics, and the Serbian population seems to have been deeply resentful of Bulgaria's role. In addition, Vladislav had been powerless to stop a Mongol army from ravaging Serbia before that army moved into Bulgaria in 1242. So Vladislav did not look good. He was a, a weak puppet of Bulgaria and couldn't even defend Serbia. And so his brother Uroš took the crown. Now, whether Uroš will prove a threat to Bulgaria remains seen to be seen. You know, okay, so he took the th crown from Vladislav. Does that mean he was super anti-Bulgarian because Vladislav was pro-Bulgarian? We don't know, but it's an ominous development. Yeah. In 1245, the Pope is attempting to gather a big anti-Mongol alliance, right? Because, as I mentioned, they are still kind of this hanging, overarching specter on Europe. Uh, everyone, even if they've never seen a Mongol, is deathly afraid of them. They've heard horror stories from Poland and from Hungary and from the Rus. And so, yeah, the Pope's trying to, to get everyone under one banner to properly fight against them and encourages Bulgaria to participate. But we don't have a lot of details about how or why, but Bulgaria politely declined. And this anti-Mongol alliance never really materializes. Also during these years, the Hungarian king Bela IV is also trying to repair his devastated country and make sure Hungary is ready for the next Mongol invasion, which he believes is coming soon. But it seems European unity can't last long enough for, to really fight against the Mongols, as we saw just now with what the Pope was trying to do. And uh, Austria broke an alliance uh, that had existed to fight the Mongols and decided to invade Hungary in 1246. As if the kind of Crusades hadn't taught us well enough that Western and Central Europe just cannot ever seem to get its act together. But Hungary managed to kill the leader of Austria in battle, a battle that uh, Hungary lost anyways, but still they killed the leader. And as a result, Hungary more or less fends off these attacks and comes out of the war just fine. And so Bela IV goes back to building up his strength in order to be prepared for when the Mongols return. 1246 also brought heaps of terrible news for Bulgaria. That year, the young Tsar Kaliman died. The poor boy was just 13 years old. 
He had been Tsar under a regency for only five turbulent years. Now, some sources say he died of natural causes, likely some disease, but we don't know. Though there's also speculation that he was in fact poisoned by Irene, his stepmother, the third wife of Ivanus and II, that one who was the daughter of the last emperor of Thessalonica, da 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 da. So the reason is speculated to have been because with the death of Tsar Kaliman, his cousin, uh, Michael II Asen, came to the throne. And Michael II Asen was also uh, the son of Irene. So people think that Irene you know, had the Tsar killed so her son could take the throne. Maybe, maybe not. But in any case, we have a new Tsar, Michael II Asen. So in 1246, when Michael ascends to the throne, this seems like, okay, great news, because Kaliman was just a kid. Maybe he would end up a strong leader, maybe not. But certainly, it was not a good time for Bulgaria to be ruled by a little regency. So this seems like great news, except that, oh, whoops, Michael is also like seven years old. Um, so, so there's not much uh, so not much actually changed. We exchanged a seven-year-old Tsar who became 13 with a new seven-year-old Tsar. Also, quick correction, just there, I said they were cousins. They were half-brothers, my, my mistake there. Um, so Michael's now Tsar, and he has maybe his mother, maybe someone else as regent. And so, yeah, everything changed and everything is the same. Uh, Bulgaria is still under a child Tsar, another boy Tsar, and another regency. So taking advantage of Bulgaria's weakened state, in 1246, Nicaea decides that, well, why not, instead of attacking Constantinople with its emperor far away, why not instead attack a weakened Bulgaria? Seems like a great idea. So now Bulgaria's in a really, I keep using the word precarious, but it's the perfect word for it, a precarious situation. Now, a quick point about the rise of Nicaea here. Uh, I want to refer back again to John Fine because he makes a good point that one of Ivanis and II's major foreign policy failures was not to see and respond to the danger posed by, my, by Nicaea's growing strength. Though Fine ultimately concludes that there wasn't that much Bulgaria could have done to prevent Nicaea from strengthening, I mean, Ivanisen could have maintained his alliance with the Latin Empire and tried to prevent Nicaea from establishing itself on the European side of the Bosphorus and threatening Bulgaria, but without the ability to move into Anatolia and take the fight to Nicaea itself, any Bulgarian attempts to restrain them would have been temporary, especially considering the weakness of the regency of Kaliman. But still, the rise of Nicaea and it, its sort of dominance of the Latin Empire took away the ability for Bulgaria to do a little bit what it had done under Ivanis II, which would which was sort of switch between allying with the Latins and with the Greeks whenever it was sort of advantageous, and in doing so sort of play the states off of one another, right? When these two states were of more or less equal strength and fighting each other, that meant a lot less pressure on Bulgaria. The last thing Bulgaria needed is a single powerful Greek state seeking to restore the Byzantine Empire, dominating the region. So back to that Nicaean attack. We don't have a lot of details, but we do know that Nicaea conquered Thrace, the Rhodopi Mountains, the Pyrin region of Macedonia, and northern Greece. In short, nearly all the territory that Bulgaria had managed to acquire from the Empire of Thessalonica so recently, as well as from the Latin Empire, was all phew, gone, conquered at a stroke. The Nicaeans may have even taken Macedonia, though the sources are a bit unsure. And all this happened in just three months. 
showing that Bulgaria was unable to put up even token resistance. I mean, there were fortresses, fortress cities in these regions that in theory should have been able to withstand sieges, but clearly that didn't happen. And so once again, we come back to the weakness of Bulgaria under a boy in a regency when it cannot sort of gather the strength of its local notables and also the weakness of the national idea, right? These local boyars were not going to fight for the idea of Bulgaria if Bulgaria wasn't represented by a strong czar who could exert his power over them. And so yeah, as a result, we, we see territory just come and go with remarkable rapidity, which seems to indicate that the locals just didn't put up much of a fight, and that the central state couldn't gather its forces to go defend them. And to make matters worse, at the same time, Michael II of Epirus has managed to take western Macedonia and Albania, completing Bulgaria's massive loss of territory. Now, at this moment you might be thinking, wait, wait a minute, I thought Epirus was gone. Didn't they transform into the Empire of Thessalonica and then more or less get conquered? Well, yes. Here's what happened. Remember that technically the remnants of the Empire of Thessalonica, you know, formerly the Despotate of Epirus, became like a tributary state of Bulgaria under the reign of Ivanasen II. Yeah, 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 we know. Well, Michael II Komnenos Dukas, this guy was the illegitimate son of the founder of the Despotate of Epirus. And when the brother of the Empire of Thessalonica, Manuel, managed to return to Thessalonica to sort of rule as a Bulgarian tributary state, around that time, that guy Michael broke away from what remained of the Empire of Thessalonica and reformed the despotate of Epirus, right? So essentially, he just took his opportunity. The Empire of Thessalonica was extremely weak. He said, eh, forget all this. I'm going to go back to Epirus and reform the state there. And now, when the last remnants of the Empire of Thessalonica were gone, Michael II could then rush into the vacuum along with Nicaea and retake all that territory, as just happened. So now we're back in a situation where Bulgaria's two southern, well, okay, three southern neighbors are the little remnants of the Latin Empire, Nicaea, and Epirus. And at the end of all this conquest, Bulgaria signed a peace treaty with Nicaea in 1247, which recognized all of their territorial gains and obligated Bulgaria to assist Nicaea in trying to retake Constantinople. So now, the, really, Bulgaria's in a bad situation. They've lost the Cumans as a source of soldiers. They're paying tribute to the Mongols slash Tatars. They just lost a massive amount of recent con recently conquered lands. And now they're obligated to go to war to support the recreation of the Byzantine Empire, a state which has been their sort of eternal frenemy, but definitely a danger to them for their entire existence. And now they have to help recreate it, according to this treaty. So Bulgaria is just surrounded by enemies where they had previously been friends and is still ruled by a child. So yeah, things are off to a great start for the, at this point, eight-year-old Tsar Michael II Asen. Oh, but it's only going to get worse. Because that year in 1247, our old friend Bela IV of Hungary granted the Knights Hospitalar control of the Banat of Severin, that bit of territory along the Hungarian border, which had traded hands a few times during the reign of Ivanasen II. These knights were a Catholic military order whose main purpose was to take and or defend, depending on who controlled it, the Holy Land. Now, why does this matter? Well, this is worrying because... It's not just because the Hungarians were giving land that Bulgaria had recently controlled to a Catholic military order, but that 
evidently as part of this agreement, um, the, the sort of knights agreed that they would assist in invading Bulgaria. So this showed that the transition Hungary was making from being devastated by the Mongols and preparing for further Mongol invasions to actually being ready to reassert their power in the region. So they're less concerned about a Mongol invasion. The Mongols are sort of distracted. We'll talk about them a bit uh, down the road. And so now they've sort of reemerged as a threat to Bulgaria, just at the time when Bulgaria really doesn't need any more threats. But luckily, a Hungarian invasion does not come that year. Instead, Bulgarian troops, following their treaty obligations, assist the Nicaeans in invading the Latin Empire to take some of that last little itty bitty bit of remaining territory in Thrace and mount an unsuccessful siege of Constantinople. Through the early 1250s, Bulgaria withdrew a bit as Epirus and Nicaea then switched to kind of alternating between alliances and wars with each other. Nicaea wanted peace with Epirus so it could take Constantinople, while Epirus was looking to expand its power in the east, as well as to eventually become the ones who would themselves retake Constantinople. So, luckily, Bulgaria was only obligated to fight against the Latins, and so this was a time for Bulgaria to just get a little breathing room in while the Greek successor states fought and sort of beat up each other. But still, the emperor of Nicaea wasn't going to give up his dream to take Constantinople, and he was planning a major attack when he finally died in 1254. His son was really more of a scholar than a leader, and so uh, really quickly... A little bit like what happened with Bulgaria, Nicaea suddenly found itself in a much weakened position with a new leader. So Bulgaria took this opportunity to exert itself and attacked Nicaea in 1255, retaking all of Macedonia. Now, Tsar Michael II Asen would have been around 16 years old at this time. So maybe he was involved, but still it was probably done by a regency, whoever that regency was composed of. But whoever was running Bulgaria, they were strong enough to muster a force and conduct the invasion. So it seems like a good sign, right? The Tsar's about to come of age. Uh, uh, Bulgaria's retaking some territory. The Nicaeans are now weak. Uh, Epirus is moving up as an alternate force to help fight the Nicaeans, a potential ally. Everything seems to be changing. And all this is also looking better because Bulgaria manages to conclude an alliance with the Hungarians. Though it's not the best alliance. They get it by giving the uh, Hungarians Belgrade and some other important Danubian cities, over which the two had fought so much over the last centuries. So, yeah, it's not a great deal. Bulgaria gives up more territory, but it does secure the Bulgarian rear and make Bulgaria confident enough to really go after Nicaea, which, understandably, it saw as its main enemy, considering they were ready to kind of dominate the Balkans at the time and reestablish the Byzantine Empire. That peace also saw the marriage of Tsar Michael and the daughter of Bela IV of Hungary. So another royal marriage and hopefully a solidified friendship with the Hungarians. But in spite of this kind of improving situation for Bulgaria, Nicaea managed to kind of get itself back together and retook Macedonia within one or two years. So Bulgaria had this brief resurgence, but ultimately it was still a weak state ruled by a teenager and his regent. You know, Bulgaria could maybe have a brief moment in the sun, but without a strong Tsar, it was not going to be able to properly exert itself. And Bulgaria's loss in these wars against Nicaea once again drew it into a peace treaty and another forced alliance with that state against Constantinople. 
And now needless to say, this put extreme strains on the Hungarian alliance, which Michael had just gone so far out of his way to obtain, right? So Bulgaria gives up territory and has a marriage to get this friendship with the Hungarians, but then are very quickly forced by loss and war to be allied with the Hungarian enemies, the Nicaeans. So uh, what's going to happen with Bulgaria and its uh, alliances here? It's a bit unclear. Uh, at the same time, the despotate of Epirus is also gathering strength, concluding alliances with Serbian and Albanian states and uh, rulers in the region. And so, alarmed by this development, a recently victorious Nicaea decides to force the despot's son to marry their emperor's daughter. But the leader of Epirus, Michael, doesn't attend the wedding. He's like, you guys still don't like you guys, I'm good. Which is probably a better choice because his wife and his family, who did attend the wedding, are basically kidnapped and held captive until Epirus gives Nicaea that famous port of Dyrrhachium, which they do. Uh, however, this provokes a swift and brutal backlash uh, by the local Albanian tribes, which join with Serbs and Epirate forces to attack Nicaea and retake Macedonia. So Nicaea, in essence, you know, they're trying to exert themselves over Epirus to take Epirus territory and everything, but the local population there really doesn't like them, whether it's you know the Serbs or the Albanians or the Greek Epirates. And so Nicaean attempts to exert themselves there go nowhere very quickly. Also around this time, Bulgaria's defeated position is simply too much for many of the boyars in Tornovo, right? Like the, the the leaders, these boyars, it's uh, I think Fine alluded to it. It's unclear whether they really want a strong Tsar um, or not. I guess maybe it, ch it changes depending on the circumstances. But in this case, they're tired of being ruled by children and they need a stronger ruler. And so sometime around early 1247, the allies of Michael's cousin, Kaliman Asen, attack and kill Tsar Michael while he's hunting. The poor boy hadn't even reached his 18th birthday and had ruled, likely always under a regency, for about a decade. And just like that, there's a new Tsar, Kaliman Asen II. And so we've had two child Tsars, both of which didn't really manage to come to age and both of whom are possibly probably murdered. Now, Michael II Asen's mother, Irene, is also expelled at her son's death in uh, 1256, and she spends the rest of her life on family land around Thessalonica. Ah, but remember, okay, Michael II Asen may have just been murdered, but he did have supporters, particularly his father-in-law, a man named Rostislav Mikhailovich, a Rus prince who worked for Hungary now that his homeland had been destroyed by the Mongols slash Tatars. Um, and so... This guy was very, very unhappy when his son-in-law is murdered. He was based in Belgrade at the time, and so he bring, gathers forces and he rushes down from Belgrade to both protect his daughter, who, you know, is not in the best position considering her husband was just murdered, and possibly, well, it seems he's interested in installing himself as a new Tsar of Bulgaria, a non-member of the House of Asen that had ruled the Second Bulgarian Empire from its founding. Now, he was unable to take Ternovo, but he was given his daughter in safety. And while Kaliman Asen II decided to flee the city, he was very afraid of Rostislav. And so as a result of his weakness, Kaliman Asen II is murdered by his followers. Um, so yeah, oops, his age is unknown. He ruled for probably a couple weeks, maybe a few months. But yeah, he, he kills Michael II Asen, gets killed himself, and that's the end of him. So now 
where are we, right? We've got this uh, Rus prince who's claiming himself as Tsar of Bulgaria, but who can't take the capital. And, you know, this member of the Asin dynasty is murdered. But luckily for them, there are many other members of the Asin dynasty. Specifically in southeast Bulgaria, a man named Mitzel, who wasn't a blood relative of the Asins, but had married the daughter of Ivanis II and was married into the family, he proclaimed himself Tsar. While Rosislav retreated to Vidin and proclaimed himself Tsar there. So now we're in a situation with two men claiming the same dramatically weakened throne. One has the backing of Hungary, Rosislav, and the other, many of the boyars and common people in the southeast of Bulgaria. Next time, we're going to see who can take that throne they believe to be so rightly theirs. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with some research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music, as always, is written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check us out everywhere. Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud. You know where to go. You know what to do. Check out the Bulgari Today podcast. And, yeah, get in touch. In the meantime, uspech. Or in English, good luck.